what's going on, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate. And look, every single week, every single week, we come to y'all with fresh content that does what? Center and amplify black and brown people at work, right? And we do that in all kinds of ways, right? We have conversations. Uh, we create dope media that centers and amplifies black and brown people at work by having discussions with black and brown executives, entrepreneurs, activists, professors, authors, influencers, and dot, 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 elected officials. I'm really excited about the person that we have on our uh, podcast today, Delegate LaCharice Aird. Delegate Aird was sworn in January 2016 to represent the 63rd House District, which includes all of the city of Petersburg, all of Dinwiddie County, and parts of Chesterfield County. She holds the special distinction of being the youngest woman ever elected to the Virginia House of Delegates. A tireless and trusted community leader, Delegate Aird is actively engaged in numerous civic boards and organizations. Through her hard work and clarity of vision, she has risen to leadership and position in each organization that she serves. Currently, she chairs the 4th Congressional District Committee of the Democratic Party of Virginia. In addition, she's a member of the Petersburg Alumni Chapter of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated the James House Board of Directors, Sports Backers Board of Directors, and is a member of the Responsible Leaders Network and the BMW Foundation, Herbert Quant. Okay, so we're going to get into this content. And look, before we get into this content, let me just also thank y'all. Uh, we launched a Kickstarter a little over a week ago. Well, I guess by the time you hear this, it'll be two weeks, right? Um, it'll be like officially like two weeks. And I'm just so thankful. Uh, I'm so thankful for everyone's support um, we are over 300 percent funded against our initial goal and the thing about it is some people ask like you know why should we continue to give look with kickstarter if you don't hit your initial goal you get nothing right so we wanted to make sure we set a reasonable goal that we thought we could hit in time but we were just shocked at the fact that we hit it in eight hours so this is a real-time update just thanking y'all thanking y'all for all the support please continue to support and back us it takes time effort and of course money to continue to create the content that we create at the quality and scale that we've created it, right? You listen to episode like 270 and we're creating, we're creating and dropping three podcasts a week, every single week, not to mention all the social media things that we're doing, the newsletters, the webinars that we're now launching. We have more content coming for your head top very soon. So announcements coming on that very, very soon. So make sure you stay tuned with us. But yeah, just thank you so much. Now, look, anyway, I wanted to go ahead and record the uh, introduction separate and just kind of give you all a thank you as we transition and get ready to get into this discussion. So the next thing you're going to hear is my conversation with Delegate LaCharice D. Aird, who represents the 63rd House District and the Virginia House of Delegates. Peace. LaCharice Aird. Lashley. Yes, that's right. Welcome, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you, Zach, for having me. You know, I'm looking really, forward to the conversation. I'm looking forward to it too. You know, what's funny is I asked you how to say your first name, and then I'm over here struggling with aired. <laughs> and just Don't a, worry, you're not alone in that. That's the, okay. The irony, the irony. Um, okay, so look, your journey is inspiring. Like, I'd like to understand what it's like being a delegate who is not only the youngest woman ever elected to the Virginia House of Delegates, but also being a black woman. Like, what challenges? Have you experienced already and what lessons have you learned? You know, Zach, um, I really appreciate that. I feel like when I went into elected office in 2015, I knew exactly what I was doing. But uh, almost uh, five years later, I can tell you I had no clue what I was doing. And I have learned so much along the way. You know, what I can say with great clarity is one of the greatest challenges that I experienced once elected, uh, you know, um, is age discrimination. Uh, that layered with being black and being a woman. Um, you know, when you are surrounded by older elected officials, men and women, there is this assumption that your age is synonymous with your experience, uh, your expertise, and your, you know, your life's work. And so a lot of uh, older members in an elected body, they dismiss you uh, without getting to know the lens in which you see issues and the lenses in which you see things. You know, the other thing that I learned and witnessed in elected office is this fear uh, that exists among older members that you're going to come along and sort of disrupt this system that they are really comfortable with. Uh, it's sort of an unspoken system uh, that's built around respectability uh, and seniority, uh, and this idea of waiting your turn. Right. Um, 
And and on top of that, I think when I think about the largest challenges I have faced, I have to put the cherry on top is the surprise of who your allies are and who your allies are not. And mm. I want to specify that by talking about the Democratic Caucus, uh, which is sort of the, the Democratic members of the elected body. Mm-hmm. I think I assumed that they would naturally be aligned with the issues that adversely impact black and brown communities, uh, impoverished communities, um, but they absolutely do not. And realizing that sometimes I found friends and Republicans that I didn't expect, uh, I think that was a tough a really tough pill uh, to swallow. Um, And then lastly, in terms of challenges, I would just say in government and politics, you know, money really still makes the world around. Uh, There is a lot of money in government and politics. And I'm not just talking about corporate dollars or special interest dollars. I'm talking about even grassroots dollars. Uh, And quite frankly, every dollar that uh, is received by elected officials it's it's uh, attached to an expectation. Uh, it's attached to a level of influence. Um, and in a system where black and brown leaders are at a disadvantage for any number of reasons when it comes to money in politics and in government, um, that can be a significant challenge for sort of a new young elected official to battle with. Um, but that's the challenges, right? So... Mm-hmm. In terms of what I have learned, Mm -hmm. uh, I've taken away a number of things. Um, Number one, and I I really have come to this realization recently after seeing uh, everything that has happened around us in the last six months, uh, married with my experience prior to then, Mm -hmm. and that is black, brown, minority leaders. And I'll, I'll say there's a caveat in that. All skin folk ain't kin folk, but for the most Listen, part, you, this, you ready for the smoke today? I can't wait to get to this interview. I'm, I'm over here just quiet. Like, oh, wait, so she really going? She not really politicking? So, she really talking about? It. Okay. So, so let me clear about that first of all. But for the most part, committed black and brown leaders, they are. We are authentically us. We are passionate, and even right. with as I described as a money disadvantage. We are built for these roles. We are built for this work and we can do this work. We can navigate these systems and we really can bring about the change that's needed in our communities. And I listed this as my number one lesson learned because especially in the last six months, I've read so many articles. I've heard so much commentary about how we have more black leaders in elected office than ever before, but we're still experiencing the same challenges that we have for the last few decades. But the truth of the matter is we are doing this work, less highlighted, less recognized, uh, but for these issues that are not sexy, that are not popular, that work is being done. And some of these larger issues, yes, it's taking us, Uh, a bit of time to tear down these systems and rebuild them, but that work is getting done. And so I just need any young person, any black and brown leader out there that's doubting and questioning whether or not this is a time for them to lead in a multitude of ways. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. And yes, you can do it. Um, The other lesson I'll talk about is, you know, I did something a little risky uh, last, uh, maybe November, December timeframe. And I made this decision to run for Speaker of the House of Delegates in Virginia. And that position could largely be considered, you know, one of the most powerful uh, elected roles to be in and probably as equally as powerful as the governor. And I I wanted to share this as a lesson learned because the very first person that I talked to about wanting to do this, they looked at me dead in my eyes, silent for just a moment and said, nope, it's impossible. Don't do it. Don't waste your time. And I can, I can vividly remember how that made me feel. Of course, me being who I am, millennial in the truest form, I did it anyway. And I'm really glad that I did it because as young black leaders, 
And in the words of Beyonce, there's no room for fear where we're going, where we're headed. Right. And right. we really have to push through these fears and these doubts that others project onto us. What I know being on the other side of that running on this other side of that journey is when I started out, there was no person in Virginia that I can go to and say, can you help me figure out how to do this? Can you help me figure out how to navigate this system? There wasn't anyone. And the problem with that is the longer we stay afraid to take risk and pursue some of these positions of power, the harder it's going to be for us to help someone else to come along and navigate these systems and understand the inner workings of how these um these operations of power are, are, are currently working. And so, you know, I just feel like because I did that, because I set aside fear, I now can do two things. Number one, I can forever remove this idea in people's mind that it would be impossible, inconceivable for a young black woman to try and achieve that kind of role. And now, when the next young black minority man or female decides that they want to pursue a position of power like mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. hey, I'm right here ready to show them the way because now I know and now I understand and now I can help them get there. But that wouldn't have happened if I did not set aside fear and doubt. And, not, yeah. Keep going. And I'll just say, and I'll just say one last thing on lessons learned. I'll just say that in black and brown communities, and this isn't to dismiss any of the organizations that are out there doing this work, but we really need to build our own political apparatuses from top to bottom. Because when it comes to money, when it comes to organizing, when it comes to really training and preparing uh, each other to be in these roles, we need to be information sharing, uh, building a hub that we don't have to reinvent the wheel every time a black or brown person wants to run somewhere in this country. Right. And that means breaking down silos. That means coordinating. And that means uh, sort of uh, putting our money together uh, to really yield our influence. And I think the other part of what that means is we also have to look at positions that are not just elected office appointed office and these actually bureaucratic roles i can't tell you how many times we have passed bills and policies that go over to the department of education the department of housing uh, transportation and so on and so forth and the bureaucrats are really the ones in power because they decide how those bills and that policy is implemented if we really want to get at the root of the change that we need to see in our communities We've got to be in all of these positions working it. We have to be in elected office uh, from every single level, local to state. And we have to be in these departments and these agencies turning uh, the, the, the machinery to make sure it's working in our favor. Uh, and I think the elected office are so, offices are so sexy that we forget about that other work that needs to be done, too. I mean... <laughs> You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so that was a lot. No, 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 no. It was fire, it. but it was fire though. I'm over here. I mean, I'm over here just like I mean, because you know, this is the thing. So living corporate, right? Like, because everything has been so heavy, I haven't really been able to like really drop, you know, drop sounds yes. and sound effects and stuff. But I mean, I got it. Like, I love it. I love it. <laughs> Okay, okay, okay. So, you know, it's, it's, so this is the thing. This is what got me excited because I asked you a fairly, like, easy question for you to politic. Let me see how, how real we're about to get on this podcast because you, you see these questions. Okay. I do, I uh, do, you ready? I do. Here we go. Now, what was, it, <laughs> what was it like to have Ralph Northam's blackface scandal come to light and standing behind him in that moment? Ah, oh, we getting real. All right, we getting real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know... This is a really interesting question because there was a spectrum of emotions and actions that occurred after, you know, the blackface scandal came to light. And, you know, I have to say when it first happened, we called for his resignation, um, both the House caucus, the Virginia Legislative Black Caucus. Um, and we stopped, you know, public events with him. I mean, talk about cancel culture. That's what happened. 
But as time went on and he would not step aside and he would not go anywhere, we had to begin to shift to this thinking around, but we are still required to govern, right? Like that's what we're here for. That's what our responsibility is. And so I can vividly remember a shift occurring from calling for his resignation, canceling him entirely to, oh, you're not going to leave? Okay, well, if you want to stay, here are our demands, here are our expectations, and here is what we want to see you do to now demonstrate your renewed or maybe brand new understanding of why your actions were so harmful to, quite frankly, it shouldn't even just be the black community, but the communities throughout Virginia, given, you know, our history. And so what I can say is, as a result of that shift, um, we have seen real results from those demands. In Virginia in particular, we've seen uh, historical funding for our historically black colleges and universities, more money than we have ever allocated to them. We have seen historical allocations toward financial aid, you know, to our most neediest students. Uh, we've also, you know, done things like lifting a discriminatory TANF family cap, which is, you know, funding that uh, mothers who are in need can receive. Um, I mean, I can go on and on with the list, but as a result of us shifting from canceling him to holding his feet to the fire, we have now seen a number of actions come about change. Although we went from a place of trying to cancel him out entirely, mm -hmm. um, we were able, I think, to bring about some real change from a policy standpoint. And the other thing I will say is as a result of this scandal, and many people don't know this, mm -hmm. I think that is what opened the door to now allowing Virginians, Virginia's leaders to actually accept the idea of a black woman governor. In Virginia, like many other states, we have never had a black woman ascend to the office of governor. And during the scandal, when we thought he might resign, there were conversations taking place around who would be appointed into that role. And black women filled that list. And although it didn't happen, what I can say is in 2021, our next gubernatorial election, we have two black women on the ballot. And so we went from a place of it being unimaginable that a, a black woman could run for governor in Virginia to now, oh, that's that's right. We should and we might. And so I think despite all of the pain and hurt that resulted from the scandal, right. we have yielded significant benefits as well. I think that's great because I'm going to tell you, you know, for me, I was like, it is. I was just like, wow, this is crazy. Like, he really out here. <laughs> <laughs> like why like, they letting him stay <laughs> i was like yo y'all y'all big wild and linda but but at the same time to your point i was like you know what you can leverage this and get you know and get them and mobilize on things that you actually you actually need yeah because you know for me i question i always question right because i'm not i'm not in political office but i just question because like, i was like well, what does it look like behind the scenes like is somebody hemming him up behind it i feel like somebody had to say something <laughs> what they must have been saying sending some and then i think about like the black think about i think about y'all like whoever the black elected officials are I'm just like i know y'all got some little group text or something i know y'all. <laughs> like, you could you could be assured of that however <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of really tough conversations right, right, but right. i i think you know to your point though and we'll talk about this a late a little bit later more in terms of leverage look at what we're talking about right now with biden's history right. kamala's history and i'm not going to compare that to blackface no, but no, what no, i will say saying. is people are like oh we need to cancel them because of these things but oftentimes those people that have something to prove you get the most out of them than you do anybody else so we're gonna talk about that a little later but we, yes we, we, we ended we up <laughs> listen okay so so side note earlier this year virginia ratified the equal rights amendment you know i'm curious like, do you think this is a is meaningful to black women or do you think it's more symbolic than it is functional so I will start this by saying, number one, I am a proud member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. And when I think about our history, yes, I would say that this is equally important to black women and white women. However, having said that, 
it does, in my opinion, uh, it translates into a symbolic action. You know, I do not find this as something substantive and something that's going to result in direct change and or an improvement in the status of uh, black women who are being adversely impacted for any number of reasons. This isn't going to do that. Um, I, I can easily say that for me, and especially when I talk to black women, particularly young black women, they care more about things like maternal mortality, right? Like, what are we going to do to stop the death of black mothers, uh, them and their children? Um, and so when we passed the Equal Rights Amendment, there was a lot of excitement, but it was quickly back to the real work of trying to protect, trying to add resources, trying to elevate uh, black women. And it, it wasn't you know, done by the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, and I can say that with great certainty because in the same year, you know, last session, that is, we did go on to pass, you know, in my opinion, historical legislature, we codified something like a, a birth worker and a community doula, which was nowhere present in our code prior to that. Um, and black women, they get that, they understand that, and they felt like, okay, this is something that could, especially for those who needed it the most. Now, this is something that we needed. This is something that can help save us, especially in instances of childbirth. Uh, and, and that is more substantive and more important. No, I feel that too. I, 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 so I struggle. First of all, I mean, I'm a man. So let me just start right there. <laughs> <laughs> let me, Thank you. Let, let me make sure I, let's be very clear uh, of where, where I sit in this conversation, which is on the outside. Uh, but, but, but no, I, as, as, as a black man who does have a black wife, and a black five-month-old daughter. I think about like, oh, yeah, yeah. No, yes. she's she's really cute. I'll send you some pictures after the show. Yes, yes. Because you don't to. seem like a weirdo. Because people be messing with you know. Just don't don't you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You can't you can't give your pictures yeah. to everybody. You can't give kids pictures. You to can't. <laughs> I agree with that. Okay. You know what? You, all right. We'll just keep it moving. So no, uh, you know, I, I think about, I do think about just the sometimes the emotional, intellectual dishonesty of some of these things. It's like, look, we know that like, I don't know. We just we just know that that black women have just been harmed in ways that are unique and that frankly, like black women have not always been seen as, and still in a lot of ways just aren't seen as their humanity is just not recognized. Right. And so I, I don't know. I appreciate your answer. Uh, my wife actually shout out to Candace. She's the one who asked me to write this question. So uh, again, shout out to Candace. Out no, to I Candace. appreciate that. And I respect that. And I think that's a, a very real perspective um, because even with, the nomination of Senator Harris the very next day, what was the headline? Suburban white women are going to now support Trump because we have the nomination right. of Senator Harris. Right. And so there's no doubt about it that for an issue like the Equal Rights Amendment, who was showing up in troves, who was showing up in masses, it was suburban white women. Right. But I also don't think that should take away, especially when we're talking about symbolism from the black women who also were leading this fight, also were on the front lines and showed up in our committee rooms and say, you can't just have this, especially not in 2020. It might just be symbolic, but uh, we have a part of this too. You know, let, and let's keep it going, right? Um, you know, the world's on fire. We got a president locking up mailboxes, cutting the legs from under an already undersourced pandemic team. The police are grabbing and throwing folks in unmarked vehicles. You know, Democrats have come out with strong language, uh, yet a lot of Americans, particularly young black and brown ones, don't feel as if elected officials are doing enough to put Trump in his place. Right. What, if anything, do you believe Democrats should be doing more of right now in this moment? And then I guess as a, a double click on that, what are things that leaders in Virginia are doing to protect their essential workers and teachers at the state level? Yeah, you know. Um, I, I really appreciate this question and I'm just going to be as direct as I can be in that number one, we're going to go back to what I said earlier. Democrats, uh, are not all created equal and they're not a monolith. And that is very clear in this moment. And so first of all, I think Democrats need to dig in deep and find the courage to have some of these really difficult conversations. Uh, from what I can tell right now, there was um, sort of some indications that Democrats were ready to do that or that they were trying to do that. But I, I still feel like there's wavering already. You know, 
I need Democrats to be unapologetic about this change that young people, uh, particularly black and brown young people are calling for in our streets and in Virginia, even still. And from the very highest levels of government to the very bottom. And then I would say we need to do a few things. We need to make a plan, work the plan and trust the plan. Too many times do we say we want to do something, but then the first sign of trouble from these lobbyist organizations, uh, these structures and systems of power, we began to quickly rate waver. Um, and I just say we can't run at the first sign of trouble, uh, especially when it's good trouble. In Virginia, we just began special session on Tuesday. Uh, and that special session is specifically for criminal justice reform. It's for us to adopt the budget and it's for us to adopt COVID-19 policies. And so we are literally just beginning, especially as Democrats, to have some of these very difficult conversations. And I can tell you, it's already feeling quite disappointing because, you know, what I spoke about earlier regarding the allies you expect to have, there are people in the party that literally are afraid to adopt some of these positions that the Black Caucus is calling for that we know will bring about the change that we need. And we are never going to get to this place in adopting these calls to action that protesters and activists are calling for if we can't unite around these concepts as a party. I would say that in terms of what we are doing in Virginia to protect our essential workers and our teachers, uh, some of the conversations that we're having is, you know, how to provide uh, eviction relief. We'll be talking about literal payments to renters who are finding themselves in eviction trouble. Um, I have a bill that's going to provide relief for individuals who found themselves not even necessarily just a poor person, but someone who's just experiencing hardship. What I will say is that where we have the most work to do in terms of protecting our teachers is right now there is distrust in the plans that have been put out to date regarding hybrid models, models that allow you know some families to choose virtual, some families to choose in-person. Uh, there's distrust in an all-in-person model, and there's distrust in a virtual, all-virtual model. And so in Virginia, there is just deep question about what is the most effective approach. And teachers feel a debate among themselves around whether or not they should be in the classrooms putting themselves at risk as well. And so I think we have not found the perfect solution and we have a lot of work to do to really find the right size um, in that regard on that issue. I really appreciate that. Um, and, and um, you know, I, I really would like to get hold on because last week I want to make sure I heard because you because I heard about because and we'll, we'll move it. We'll make sure we put it all together. You talked about the eviction relief and support too, though. Yes, yes. And so right now we have a record number of families that are experiencing eviction. And so the governor has established a, a rental relief program where we are given, you know, money directly to tenants to assist them with paying their arrearages. Um, but I think even that system is not going to be enough. We see right now from just the number of individuals who are facing this hardship and so during this special session, we will also be looking at repayment plans for eviction that really take into consideration how long it's going to require to get back onto their feet, including things like a continued moratorium uh, through to April 2021. So we are working through a number of, of um, these policies and more, most importantly, the relief that people need right now. And so we're right in the hard work. So, you know, let's let's talk a little bit about the DNC, right? Like, like, I'm curious to get your perspective on just major takeaways, any standout moments for you. I mean, I think about I think about uh, President Obama. You know, he was up there a little spicy. (laughs) Him and Michelle. First lady was uh, she was spicy. (laughs) More more like first shady. Am I right? No, I'm playing. Uh, (laughs) I like that. I like that. (laughs) No, no. But I think, you know, so this is the thing. This is what I love about Michelle. Michelle got excuse me. First Lady Michelle Obama. Now you know her. Y'all go way back. It's cool. No, 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 no. I don't. I don't. I don't. Let's not. Let's not confuse the narrative. Uh, so <laughs> she got there. Her hair was laid, and she said, "I'm about to light this dude up." 
Um, yes. And then, yeah. And then, of course, you know, and then, you know, like, I, like, you know, Barack kind of got there, kind of almost kind of almost cried for a second. He got emotional. He did. He did. You know but that's how you know how much this country means to him. Yeah. That's how you know how much, you know, these ideals around democracy, um, how much that means to him. It's not just the title. It's not just the role. And so yeah. your question, though, major takeaways, standout moments. You know, I would say that the number one takeaway for me is that this election is bigger than the current occupant of the White House. Uh, when you talk about something as major as our democracy is at stake, you know, I walked away hearing every single speaker speak to that just a little bit and that we can't just want to remove uh, that individual from the White House. We have to think about this for ourselves, our needs, uh, our collective futures and the democracy of this country. Uh, and so it's bigger than just vote on election day to remove him. Um, in addition to that, I feel like I heard a resounding, the onus is on us. As voters, basically, it's up to us what will happen after November. And I'll even President Obama who said, do not let them take away your power, referring to voting. And, you know, he goes on to say this democracy was not meant to be transactional. And I think that's true for not just the presidential election, but every one of these offices that we vote for. You're not supposed to just show up, vote, and then watch and see what they do and expect them to go and just change everything that you have had a problem with. We have a responsibility to remain active participants in this government and speak to the fire. And so I felt like I saw and heard a lot of that being described uh, throughout the convention. Um, and then I will say two more things. Um, there was this constant reminder of all of the issues that the Democratic Party stands for. And so oftentimes we get hung up on a single issue that matters a lot to us, but we forget about how much we're paying for prescription drugs, how much the food prices are in the grocery store, which is directly tied to some of the decisions at the federal government level, at least. I mean, some of these everyday kitchen table issues, those were addressed during this. Pandemic. I think that was important because it connects with everyday people it reminds everyday people of all of the different issues that, that we need to be working on and what our party stands for. And I will just say, lastly, vote, 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 vote early, vote now, vote for yourself, take somebody else to go vote. And with all the insecurities that we are hearing about with the postal system, we can't afford to wait until November. Uh, we need to, as soon as we can, be requesting, you know, um, absentee ballots or going in to vote absentee as soon as that window is available in our states. And we need to go and vote and in large numbers beyond a comfortable margin so that there's no question about who the winner is when we get the results. So, you know, let's talk a little bit about how we got here with the Biden-Harris ticket, right? Like, there's a common sentiment that this ticket, while of course better uh, than Trump, is not the progressive ticket that black folks need to achieve the progress that we're looking for. I also think that Trump has flown so far right that someone now coming in just being slightly right of center will feel like left, right? I'm just curious what you would say to black voters, particularly the young ones who are disillusioned even now with this process. What would, what would you say to us? Yeah, I would say two things. Number one, I would say that it's important for especially young voters, black and brown voters, to care about the past journeys of Vice President Biden and Senator Harris and ask your questions and be informed and seek the answers to those questions. But we really cannot afford to get hung up on Vice President Biden's record or Senator Harris's record. Um, this is about getting people in those positions that we can push and hold accountable. And quite frankly, when you think about the current occupant in the White House, our issues are a non-starter for him. So there is no way to hold him accountable. There is no way to push for those things that you're fighting for and that you care about. We have to really stop depending so on these individuals in elected office. I find that oftentimes, both young and old, 
we put elected officials on a pedestal and we act like we didn't give them the job. We need to not only show up and vote, but be clear about reminding them who put them there into these roles, what our expectations are when they get there, and then holding their feet to the fire while they're there until they accomplish what we've asked them to do. And, and then I will say, I hate that voters are looking solely at Vice President Biden and Senator Harris. There will be positions up and down the ballot where you live and in your state. And we don't spend enough time talking about those leaders. Um, you have a lot more electives that you will be voting for outside of just the presidential. And so when you talk about losing hope and being, you know, sort of disillusioned, the issues that you feel live that actually touch you, those decisions are more times than not made by those down ticket candidates on the ballot. And you need to spend some time figuring those people out as well. I mean, prime example, look at what we see happening in the Breonna Teller case, the attorney general, a major sort of office um, where he was elected and he has laid out no clarity about the process. We have been waiting for final decisions to be made. Right. But elected leader, yeah. we do not talk enough about the rest of the people on the ballot, which really deeply impacts your day to day life. And so, no, you might not be satisfied with some of the questionable history and the backgrounds of two at the ticket. But this election is bigger than them. And we need to pay attention to all of these elected positions that are going to be on our ballots in our communities and in our states. I mean, I appreciate that. Recently, at the late Senator John Lewis's funeral, former President Bill Clinton contrasted Senator Lewis with the late Stokely Carmichael, stating there were two or three years where the movement went a little too far towards Stokely. But in the end, John Lewis prevailed. So to me and black activists, because I'm not saying I'm an activist, I think <laughs> right to be clear, because I don't want to be one of them people. Right. Like, but I. I, be I believe that we all perform our own various forms of activism through the things that we do and performing authentically as ourselves. Right. But I'm not, I would not say I'm like an activist. Like that's, I don't know. Okay. But, Fair enough. But this still did feel alienating to me, right? And I'm curious, yes. like, how you, how do you believe, because you, you, you brought up respectability earlier. How do you believe the Democratic Party can be more welcoming to the next generation of black activists or even just black folks who are more socially conscious and who have a bent towards black liberation, like beyond just like black capitalism, but like actual true following in the footsteps of some of their like activist forefathers and mother. Yeah. So no, I think this is getting right to the core of it. And admittedly I am, you know, extremely active within my state party have been in leadership positions and really have gotten to understand sort of that apparatus structure. And I just, I can't say it enough, but the party isn't a monolith and it breaks down all over the place. It breaks down uh, on lines of age, on lines of race, on lines of progressive versus moderate. I mean, you know the deal, but I feel like as we think about this next generation and as they are beginning to look and hold the party accountable and rightfully so. And, and I actually would say this is true not just for the party, but for a lot of these historic civil rights organizations and systems, I think we have come to a point where there needs to be an acknowledgement of the leaders, our icons that have come before us and have led the way. They did so using strategies and tactics that were effective for that time. The baton, in my opinion, in seeing what we have experienced in the last six months has formally been passed. And yes, we need our elders, if I can say that without you know making someone feel old, right, right. Uh, our historic icons. We really need them to serve as guardians, as advisors, and as mentors, but really make space and create opportunity for present-day activists, present-day young people to work on these issues, to fight on these issues in a way that is needed today, which looks very different than how it's done historically. So it's not going to always be done in a way that the historic Democratic Party system has understood or even in a way that makes them feel comfortable. But this is where we are. And I think until we have that real honest conversation, 
we're actually going to continue to end up bumping heads and that's counterproductive to our causes you know i, I think i think t- speaking of it just being counterproductive you talked about voting right and like and doing what you can to vote i'm curious to believe if there's anything else that like our elected leaders can do right now to mitigate such long lines in black and brown districts do you you know in your caucus have plans to protect black and brown virginians voting like what does that look like for y'all yeah you, you know i mentioned earlier that we're in session and so the benefit of that has been we have already agreed to do things like uh prepaid postage you know we're setting aside two million dollars uh so that folks can mail in their absentee ballots without having you know the additional expense of actually putting it in the um, we are setting up in virginia uh drop-off boxes and drop-off location to make uh actually dropping off your absentee ballot more accessible not just to the registrar's office or to an office that's not in you know your immediate community um, and then in addition to that we are going to remove the requirement that you have a witness signature on your ballot which you know for sometimes if it's just you you know what are you going to do we started doing that in our primary election and so we're definitely do that again and so we're trying to create an environment where Again, you can not leave your home for fear of the pandemic or if you're elderly with a disability and even if you're not any of those things to start the voting process sooner and get your ballot turned sooner. Uh, So those are a few of the things that we're going to be doing. You know, so I want to go back. I want to go back about, um, you know, we're talking about being disillusioned and discouraged. Right. And I do feel the stakes here and I do. I get it. I really want to read a couple of these tweets. And I really want to, and it's funny because people, it's really interesting. I think it's like a sign of just like cultural awareness when you dismiss folks like on, like if you dismiss people tweeting, cause it's like no real people, right? Like if somebody tweets something and it has like (laughs) 400,000 likes, maybe you should, I I mean, maybe read it. I'm not saying there's a following and an, uh, and an agreement there. there, There's something. Okay. So, (laughs) so, uh, okay. So I'm gonna read this and I'm going to, I want to respect the person who, um, so the, the, the Twitter name is uh, queer socialism. Um, okay. Okay. So this is here we go. He's responding to a tweet, and the the response. This is mine too. He goes, "I get that, but what's the alternative? I agree that the cycle has to be broken, but I feel like we've missed our chance this cycle already. We're stuck with Biden versus Trump in the general, and I haven't seen a third party candidate that is gonna you know make a difference." Blah blah blah. So then he says, "Everyone who sits on asking me what's the alternative does not want my answer because it's uncomfortable and requires far more than many." If not, most of you are willing to sacrifice. It is no easy one size fit all answer that can be explained in 280 characters. You want easy, quick solutions. There are none to fascism. The alternative fascism is taking money out of your paycheck every month and giving it to radical mutual aid funds, feeding clothing and helping homeless people. It's going outside and physically demanding politicians provide housing and health care to all homeless people and it's just in their face when they say no and refusing to leave their office or homes and refusing to allow them to leave until they change their minds. It's putting pressures on CEOs and food service corporations to give food they waste and throw away every day to people in need of it for free. It's putting our bodies and lives on the line to stop the war and deportation machine. It's training ourselves and dedicating our lives to community. You know, I'm curious about this in terms of, you know, I believe this moment is scary, right? And it's pushed me to realize that we do have to do something intentionally and literally for our neighbor. I'm curious if you believe this confluence of events is allowing for a more radical lens regarding accountability and driving systemic change. And, you know, what is the 63rd doing right now in this regard? You know, I took deep interest in this tweet and the ideals in it. And when I when I read it, I literally thought about an experience that I had just throughout this pandemic. And really quickly, if I can, um, in my district back in early March, April period, we had a situation where we discovered that people were living without water. And I'm talking about people not having water for months, And in some instances, I think we had at least one woman who had been without water for almost a year. And I was floored when the issue was brought to my attention because I just, I thought, how has this been allowed to go on? I had a city councilor in um, the city, one part of my district, who sort of wrote to the mayor and said, hey, we're in a pandemic now. I understand, you know, these individuals may have been disconnected prior to the pandemic for any number of reasons, but I think we should reconnect them because of health and safety reasons. 
And my goodness, the response from the mayor was, not only will we not reconnect the water, but the ideal of doing so is an act of socialism. Well, you know, number one, I was floored by the response because it is not an act of socialism, but quite frankly, it's common sense. And to do anything less in this environment, I consider it to be inhumane. So I share that story and that example because I think some of the issues that we are talking about from day to day and even in this tweet are being categorized as radical when in fact they shouldn't be. Uh, some of our actions that we are sort of now just really getting really savvy about and bold enough to actually speak truth to power on is long overdue. Uh, these systems that we have been tolerating, quite frankly, are pretty screwed up and they need to be torn down and they need to be rebuilt. Rebuilt in a way that doesn't penalize people for being impoverished or without and gives really everyone a fair shot at not just survival, but a quality of life everyone has come to expect. Um, and so without that push, no, I don't think we would be seeing some of the change um, that is actually showing up and be having conversations around a new way to envision these systems. So as far as what the 63rd district is doing, you know, I'm pretty fired up. Uh, I can speak specifically to this legislative session that we're in and that means everything about being unapologetic and pushing for this change. Um, and I mentioned some of this earlier, but that change is, yes, people are having a hard time. So we should be providing relief for them. Uh, they have lost their jobs. They have been set back in not any result of their own. Declaring racism a public health crisis. I'm carrying that resolution. And when you think about doing that in the Commonwealth of Virginia, home of the Confederacy, right. I think the state that led to, quite frankly, racism throughout this country, mm -hmm. we must do that, even as uncomfortable as it makes people, because we are seeing the disparate impact still in black and brown communities, even more so during this pandemic. And then things like what you see happening all over the state. I'm happy to be carrying a full ban on using the no-knock warrants um, here in the Commonwealth, which even the idea of doing this has led to wide outcries by law enforcement. But I am, you know, unmoved. I am listening. Mm -hmm. uh, but I am continuing to push on this issue because it's the right thing to do. And there's plenty of data that shows it is. Um, so that's a few things. But yes, in the 63rd District, we are pushing for some of this change. And this is only a special session, which means it's very confined and it's very limited. But it doesn't just end here. I consider this to be sort of the first leg um, as we head into future sessions. So, yes. Well, first of all, I mean, shout out to you. And you know, also, you know, let me thank you real fast, you know, because, you know, you had an opportunity. You said, you know, the things they do need to be, they need to be dismantled and they need to be, you know, reconstructed in a different way. I'm just so thankful for you that you did not try to say, you know, you try to slide a bill back better in there. You know what I mean? You weren't, you know, <laughs> you know, we can I, talk about that later. I was, I was like, cause if you said it, I would have been like, you know, like, oh. come on, come on now. We need a better, we need a better. Cause my, cause it don't match. Build back better. Don't match it, with when it comes it, to it don't match because then you got Kamala up there and she got the Mary J. Blige and then you know y'all playing Star Earth Wind and Fire song at the I don't know what that song was at the end I was like oh y'all really trying to okay talk about some build back better well you know what I'm saying you know what about bounce back better you know something put a little something on put a little sauce on it I was just come on guys I I am very clear <laughs> on where we are as a party and the work that needs to be done. <laughs> but you know what you learned along the way? You learn how to navigate this system. And that is indeed what we are doing. <laughs> <laughs> I just need people to understand that. No, no, no. I get that. I get that. It, it's, it's, just, it's very, very funny. Um, okay. So, look, this has been a dope conversation. Now, we've had uh, Royce West on the show. But I would say, you know, you, you're the lively politician that we've had, you know. On oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank absolutely. you. I'll take that. You, as you should. I, I, I mean that with all the love that is intended. Um, Thank you. Now, look, now, look, I don't know if you want to be spicy. Do you want to call out? Do you want to go ahead and call out any political opponents and be really messy right before we leave? Nope, not at all. Okay, respect. I <laughs> 
Nope. Oh my gosh. Okay. Not at all. <laughs> hey, hey. I know the constraints of where I in my operate. I appreciate that. Cause I was, I was like, I was like, man, how spicy is she really about to get? She's talking. She's saying some stuff. Um, uh, okay, but that's good. That that lets me, like, gives me a boundaries for the future. Now, this has been a dope conversation. <laughs> Before we let you go, what are the three things you want the ten thousand folks listening to this show this week alone to do? I want them to right away request their absence out so that they can begin the process of making the plan and preparing to vote. I want them to actually figure out the rest of the people on their ballot besides uh, Vice President Biden and Senator Harris, because there will be a lot of other really critical positions to vote on. Uh, and I want them to go and find a black, young black elected to support. We are out here doing this work. It's not easy work. And it is during a really critical time. And it's good to know that um, you are aligned with your activists in your communities, with the people who care about these issues as much as you. Um, and then not only that, but what kind of guest would I be if I say continue more corporate? I mean, hey. this amazing podcast giving voice to black and brown communities on issues that matter to us the most. Come on now, y'all heard La Charisse. <laughs> y'all heard La Charisse aired. <laughs> there you go. You got it right. Got it right. Now listen, now look, that's that's our show, y'all. You know what we're doing. Every single week, new content for your head top. You know, we're tra- we're trying to have authentic discussions that center black and brown people. I think I've said in the past, Living Corporate doesn't consider itself a political podcast, like certainly not in the way of like, you know, the daily or uh love it or leave it or pod save America, right? But when it's relevant and and poignant for us to have these discussions, we're going to have them, right? And so that's why we had Lachery's aired. And so I'm very look. We're all, I'm not going to do all the domains, right? We're all over Beyonce's internet. You just type in Living Corporate, okay? We're going to pop up. Go in your little browser, type in Living Corporate, your little search engine, Ask Jeeves, uh, Google, you know, all those, right? Your Black Planet, your <laughs> Zanga, right? Go in there and type in Living Corporate. We got all the SEOs on on lock, okay? Until next time, this has been Zach Nunn, and you've been listening to LaSharice Aired, the youngest delegate elected or in a House of Delegate for Virginia uh, ever uh, of the 63rd, the fighting 63rd. That's right. That's uh, right. All of that. All of that. All of that. Leader, speaker, shoot, mentor, teacher, and servant to the people. Till next time, y'all. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.